Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Awesome. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. My name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you yet, if you're new around here, one of the pastors here, my job primarily uh, is to oversee what happens during this time of our gathering. My, my title is the pastor for vision and teaching, which is just a fancy way to say that I'm sort of in charge of this uh, along with some other people. And so um, I wanted to spend some time this morning uh, on that passage that we just read Uh, But I want to set it up for a little bit first. Uh, If you missed last week or if you're here for the first time this morning, uh, we kicked off a series last Sunday called Question Everything. And we spent the majority of our time last week unpacking this deconstruction movement that is happening right now in the West where a lot of people are asking difficult questions about their faith in Jesus and sometimes walking away from Jesus as a result of that process. That's what we talked about last Sunday. And one of the main things that we mentioned last week was that really when it comes to something like deconstruction, there is a good version of it and there's a bad version of it. There's good deconstruction and bad deconstruction. Good deconstruction is when we use the Bible to analyze and think critically about what Christianity should be versus what Christianity has actually become in many cases. That's a healthy thing to do, and arguably, that is what Jesus spent a lot of his time and ministry on earth doing, was comparing what his movement and what the people of God were doing from what they were called to do. That's good deconstruction. But there's also bad deconstruction. Bad deconstruction is when we use our current cultural moment and perspective and vantage point to critique everything else around us, including the Bible and the belief system that the Bible has set forward. That's bad deconstruction. So over the next five weeks of this series, what we want to do is learn how to do the good type of deconstruction and be able to recognize and reject the bad type of deconstruction. And we're doing that primarily by exploring some of people's biggest, most pressing questions when it comes to Christianity. So the first question that we'll be covering this morning is this. Why are Christians so politically driven? We're just diving in headfirst. My philosophy has always been, if you're going to make people mad at you, why wait, right? Like, just, just start off there. But there's a reason that I felt compelled to tackle this question first in our series. And that's because in my experience, talking to people who have deconstructed or are deconstructing, this topic, politics and Christians' involvement in politics, tends to come up most frequently. Now, It may or may not be the primary reason for people deconstructing, but it certainly is one of the topics that comes up the most as we talk to people. And I think that's because, really, the last couple of election cycles here in the U.S. have been quite disorienting for a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. 
a lot of people have been left with a very real disconnect about how Christians could support certain people that they supported, and then other people have been left with a disconnect about why there's a disconnect with those people. But one way or another, there is a good bit of confusion, frustration, and disillusionment around what exactly happened over the past five or six years in the American political landscape. Now, just for clarity here, before we get into it, I, I don't think the issue that people are having is that Christians are involved in politics. I don't think that's the pushback. I don't think people are disillusioned because Christians are politically informed or politically involved or even because they have political leanings. Best I can tell, the issue is actually the degree to which many Christians are involved in politics. The way in which some Christians have allowed political ideologies and talking points to dominate their thinking and living in substantial sorts of ways. The critique, best I can tell, isn't that Christians are politically involved, but rather that Christians are often politically consumed. They're politically driven in a lot of really unhealthy ways. So that's what I want us to get into this morning. Why is that the case within Christianity? So we'll just start off things here. Uh, in January 2016, then Republican frontrunner Donald Trump made a campaign stop in Sioux Center, Iowa. The appearance was at a conservative Christian college in one of the most conservative Christian communities in the nation. And the speech he gave at that appearance was the one that included the now famous line about how he felt like he could, quote, stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and he wouldn't lose any voters as a result of it. But while that line from his speech got a lot of attention, there was arguably another line in that same speech that was far more important, especially as it relates to understanding what happened with his campaign, and especially as it relates to our question for this morning. He started off that same speech that day by saying that Christianity was, quote, under siege right now but that if people would elect him president as a result, Christianity would, quote, have power again. That was the promise that he offered. Now, I would imagine in a room this size, there are a wide variety of different opinions on Donald Trump and on that particular statement. I don't really care to start swinging at that hornet's nest this morning, but I don't know that we have to. I don't know that we have to really go there because at least best I can tell, that statement from Trump was just him reading the room. He and his campaign were dialed into a felt problem among a lot of evangelicals in the country, and he was simply setting himself and his campaign forward as the solution to that problem. Evidently, at least for a large number of evangelicals in America, the perception is that Christianity either has lost or is losing much of its cultural power and influence, and that something needs to be done to remedy that. That apparently is the belief held by many. And I would say, just based on the results of the 2016 election, the indicators are that Trump read that room fairly well. That is indeed the sentiment for an awful lot of Christians in the US. Now, a couple of important disclaimers on what I just said. First, based on the numbers, we have to acknowledge that that sentiment and that strategy largely only resonated with white evangelicals in America. 
Christians of color were not nearly as motivated by it. And there are plenty of reasons for that, one of which is that many Christians of color in America have never had the luxury of a position of cultural power and influence, so they don't feel nearly as threatened or as paranoid by the prospect of losing it. But second, and I think this is really important to notice, it's important that we point out that the Republicans are not the only ones capitalizing on that fear or that narrative. The Democrats are too, they just use different language for it. For instance, one of the favorite catchphrases on the left is telling people that they don't want to be on the, quote, wrong side of history, that you should do this because you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You may have heard that language before. Now, notice with that statement or language like that, even though the language of power isn't explicitly in there, the idea of power very much is. The implication with a statement like that is that history is moving in a particular direction and that if you don't vote for a certain person or support a certain policy or update your beliefs in a certain way, history will leave you behind. You won't be respected, you won't have influence, and you won't have power. So it turns out both parties, both ends of the political spectrum, sometimes motivate people with the fear of losing power. And for whatever reason, they especially employ that tactic in their dealings with Christians. The only difference is found in the solutions that each party proposes to that fear. The right tells Christians that we are losing power and influence and we need to fight to take it back. While the left tells Christians that we are losing power and influence and that we need to update our beliefs so that we can share in the power once again. Same diagnosis of the problem, different proposed solutions. How's everybody doing? Little bit of tension in the room? Well, let's get to the important part. What does Jesus think about all of this? That's the question we always want to ask as followers of Jesus, right? Not just what seems right or what is practical or what's preferable or even what's politically expedient, but what would Jesus think and do when it comes to issues like these? Conveniently, that's sort of what Mark 12 is all about. For the next little bit, we're just going to work through this passage line by line. We're going to hear about a time that Jesus was presented with a very similar problem to ours and very similar solutions, but then he proposed an altogether different response than both camps. So let's take a look together at Mark 12, starting in verse 13. Here's what it says. Later, they, they in context is the religious establishment of Jesus' day, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay, so let's briefly stop here and unpack some context about what's going on. To understand what happens in this passage and to understand how it connects to our question this morning, you need to know who these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were. So I need to give you the briefest of history lessons, if that's okay. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of Jesus' day. They held to a literalist interpretation of the Bible. They held very strict, very high moral standards. And because of all of that, they had a tendency towards some self-righteousness at times. I don't know if you know anybody like that or grew up with them or went to church with them, but that's what the Pharisees were like. 
Their response, the Pharisees' response to the Roman world around them was equal parts separatist and antagonistic. That was their approach to the world around them, separatist and antagonistic. They felt like the occupying Roman government infringed upon their independent status as God's people, so they didn't like it. They felt like it took power away from them, so they were against it. And they were regularly looking for ways to get their cultural power and influence back. In fact, that's precisely what they believed the Messiah was coming to do, was to give them their power and influence back. That's the Pharisees. Now, the Herodians were more like the religious progressives of Jesus' day. They were on the other side of the political spectrum. Their approach, when it came to the ways and the customs of Rome, was more like go along to get along. They tended to throw their lot in with the Romans, in large part because it gave them more cultural power and influence as a result. It gave them more power by association, essentially. And because political expediency was their goal, their morality was a little more, shall we say, flexible at times. It, it wasn't that they didn't have moral standards, it's just that those things could be adjusted when needed, if they needed to. That they knew that if they wanted to maintain some level of cultural influence alongside the Romans, they needed to live as the Romans do, as the saying goes. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, while it's important for us to note that these two groups are not the same as the political right and the political left of our day, there are plenty of differences to be sure, there are also at least a few striking similarities, right? And particularly, there are some similarities when it comes to their approaches to power, to cultural power and influence. Each of them understood the power of the Roman government as being in competition to their own power and influence, but they responded to that fear in different ways. One responded with antagonism towards that power, and the other one responded by accommodation to that power, not unlike the two responses of the political camps of our day. Now, because of all of this, these two camps, the Pharisees and the Herodians, didn't often agree on much of anything, as you might imagine. They despised one another, they avoided one another, they were often driven by contempt for the other group, not that any of us modern Americans know anything about that dynamic at all. The Pharisees and the Herodians could not work together on much of anything. But in this moment, in Mark chapter 12, we find them in a rare moment of unity on some level, precisely because they're both trying to trap Jesus. Notice both camps find them at odds with Jesus. Keep reading with me in verse 14. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Just a little empty flattery there to butter Jesus up. Uh, just as a word of advice, if two people come up to you in an argument and they start flattering you, run fast. Because that's a trap and that's what's happening to Jesus here. They want to catch him in his words, and they want to do it by way of this question that they ask next. Pick it back up with me, end of 14. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar, the Roman governor at the time, or is it not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? 
So the tax that they're asking about, <clears throat> excuse me, was the tax paid for the privilege of living under Roman rule. The Pharisees were not fans of this particular tax because it was perceived as symbolically consenting to Roman rule over them, the very thing that they were passionately against. The Herodians generally had no problem paying this tax because, again, their philosophy was go along to get along. So this is not just two groups of people asking Jesus for tax advice, as odd of a story as that would be in the Bible. This is them both trying to pin Jesus down to a political ideology. It wouldn't be unlike a group of Republicans and a group of Democrats going up to Jesus today and asking him where he stands on gun control or on immigration or on abortion. They're asking Jesus this question because they want to know where he stands, politically speaking. They're hoping that based on his answer, they can put him in a political category. They can assign him a label. They can figure out once and for all how Jesus thinks about how the Jewish people should relate to the power dynamics of their day. Is Jesus a get our power back kind of guy or is he a go along to get along? kind of guy. That's what they're trying to figure out through this question. Let's see how Jesus responds. Second half of 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So a denarius was one of the more common forms of currency in Jesus's day. 16. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this on the coin? Whose inscription is there? Caesar's, they replied. So the coins, the denarius, had Caesar's image on the coin, much like our coins have former presidents on them. But in Jesus' day, that's because this particular coin was literally minted out of Caesar's personal wealth, out of his treasury. Then Jesus said to them, okay, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So what is Jesus' answer? Well, read at a very surface level, you might be inclined to think that he chose the side of the Herodians, right? Because he encouraged them to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, i.e. pay the tax. But when you read a little bit closer in the passage, you realize that he actually just confronted both sides. On the one hand, he says, likely staring right at the Pharisees, pay the tax, don't be difficult for the sake of being difficult. You are effectively Roman citizens. You benefit from Roman culture and customs and conveniences and roads. And everyone else who is a Roman citizen pays this particular tax. So pay the tax. Don't be antagonistic for no reason. Don't set yourself against the Roman government just because you don't like or you don't agree with aspects of it. And I'll just add to this, uh, whatever you currently think of our government here in America, however overbearing or overreaching you may consider it to be, it is nothing compared to the Roman Empire of Jesus' day. They literally crucified people who set themselves against their government. So you can bet that if Jesus said this to the Pharisees of his day and how they should relate to Rome, he would also say something similar to us living in a 21st century democracy. 
If he said to them, don't be difficult for the sake of being difficult, the same advice would apply to us. That's his challenge to the Pharisees. But there's actually a challenge in there for the Herodians too. It's easier to miss, but it's in there. After he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus then says, but give to God what is God's. The coin has Caesar's image on it, so then what has God's image on it? According to the book of Genesis, we do. Human beings do. People do. Jesus is saying, essentially, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar. It's his money anyway, so give it back to him if he asks for it. But you, Herodians, belong to God. As in your entire life and every part of it. Every part of how you live and how you conduct your life belongs to God. So you should rightfully give the entirety of your life to him. Now, when you speak that to a group of people that often played fast and loose with how God said to live, that would have been heard loud and clear as a word of correction. Jesus knows that when the world around you secures your allegiance, when you start to take cues from the world on how you live and what you value and how you pri- what you prioritize and even how you relate to those who are different than you, when you do that, you actually cease to be a part of God's kingdom. God made you, he created you, and so he rightfully claims authority over every part of your life. And that is a much higher authority than any king, any emperor, any president, and any political party will ever be able to claim. So do not give any person, any party, any campaign, any candidate, or any ideology your allegiance. That's Jesus' word of advice. So the question all of us should be asking at this point as followers of Jesus in the room is how do I know if I've done that? How do I know if I've given a political party or candidate or ideology my allegiance? How do we know if we've given them more than they actually deserve? How do we know when our allegiances are off, politically speaking? Well, this will be far from exhaustive, but I'll give you two significant indicators of that. Two significant indicators that your allegiances may be off when it comes to politics. One indicator is when you have a tendency towards package deal politics. When you have a tendency towards package deal politics. Let me explain what I mean by that term. Package deal politics is when you find a particular party or candidate's position on one issue compelling, and then you feel like you have to buy into their entire platform as a result of that one issue. So hypothetically, Let's say, as a follower of Jesus in the room this morning, that you find the Republican platform on sexual ethics compelling. Maybe you're not 100% on board with everything, but you think overall the Republicans get it right on that issue. Package deal politics would have you believe that if you find their stance on that particular issue compelling, you must find their stance on all other issues compelling. So people end up concluding, okay, well, if I agree with the Republicans on ethics or on sexuality, I guess I also have to agree with them on guns. I guess I also have to agree with them on economic theory and policy. 
That's package deal politics. Or on the other side of the spectrum, let's say you're in the room and as a follower of Jesus, you say, I agree with the Democrats on caring for the poor. I think they get it mostly right on that topic. Package deal politics is when you go, okay, well, if I agree with them on how to care for the poor, I guess I also have to agree with them on issues like abortion or on the redefinition of gender and sexuality. Thinking that way is what we might call package deal politics. Feeling like we have to agree, we have to buy in to every part of a platform just in order to accomplish one thing that we think they get right. The problem with package deal politics, though, is that no political party, present, past, or future, will ever have a monopoly on the kingdom of God. I'm gonna say that again. No political party, present, past, or future, will ever have a monopoly on the kingdom of God. Author Brett McCracken, writing for the Gospel Coalition several years back, put it this way. I think this is really well put. He says, consistent faithfulness to scripture will never square with total alignment to any political party. A gospel agenda is not set by partisan think tanks in Washington, D.C. It's set by scripture. A gospel agenda may align with some aspects of one political party and some of another and should spur us to engage in those areas. But it also decidedly rejects some aspects of both. God's agenda is better, bigger, and more glorious than any one party, nation, culture, or time. The mission of Jesus will outlast every White House tenure. It will outlast America itself. For the Christian, the right side of history is always the side that places faithfulness to the eternal God above loyalty to a temporal tribe. God is too good for package deal politics. And if you ever find yourself in a place as a follower of Jesus where you are unable to critique or diverge from aspects of your preferred political party, that's a pretty good sign that you've given them your allegiance. Now, second indicator I'll give you that you may have given a political party your allegiance is found in who you identify most with. who you identify most with. Put another way, it's when you have more in common with those who share your politics than you do with those who share your faith. If you are a Republican, do you identify more with fellow Republicans than you do with fellow followers of Jesus who happen to be Democrats? If you're a Democrat, Do you identify more with fellow Democrats, regardless of their belief system, or do you identify more with fellow followers of Jesus who happen to be Republicans? Now, I do think it's worth acknowledging here that especially here in the South, there are plenty of people who claim to be Christians who very obviously are not. But when you take those people out of the equation, who do you most identify with as a follower of Jesus? And to add to that, If you're the type of person that decides whether or not another person is a real Christian based on their political affiliation, that's a dead giveaway. If you discover the political affiliation of another follower of Jesus and it differs from yours and you go, oh, they must not really be a Christian then, that reveals a heart that is more aligned with a party than it is with God's kingdom. 
So if you are here and you're at all politically inclined, I would just encourage you to truly reflect on those indicators and others like them. Like I said, it's far from exhaustive. I think those are two primary ones. I would encourage you to reflect on that. I would encourage you to truly consider whether or not you have given your allegiance to a particular political ideology. Listen, it is completely fine for followers of Jesus to have political preferences and even political leanings, but no follower of Jesus should ever give a political perspective our allegiance. That's against the teachings of Jesus. When we give over our allegiance to something other than Jesus, that's a pretty good indicator that we have yielded to the allure of worldly power and influence. But in our passage from Mark chapter 12, it's interesting to me that Jesus displays an altogether different approach to power and to politics. He, he first rejects the notion of antagonizing and vilifying the world around him in order to take power back from them, but he also rejects the notion of accommodating to the world and following its lead in order to regain its approval. His approach confronts both of those responses and simultaneously chooses neither of them. Now, let's just be honest in the room for a second. That's troubling to a lot of us, isn't it? Like, is Jesus not bothered by a worldly Roman government exercising power over him and his people? Does he not understand the threat posed by them? I mean, surely he sees how immoral the Roman government is. Surely he sees how cruel and oppressive they tend to be. Surely he sees how their values and their priorities are not aligned with the kingdom of God in the least. Doesn't he see all that as a threat to his religious freedom? So why doesn't he feel like that's a problem that needs to be solved? Why isn't he bothered by the loss of cultural power that he and his people are experiencing in his day? I think we get the answer, answer to that question in the Gospel of John. So here in this passage, we'll put it up on the screen here in a minute. There, Jesus is being questioned by a governing authority, a Roman governing authority, just a matter of hours before he is crucified. And he utters these words in response to a question. This is John 18, verse 36. We'll put it up on the screen. Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus says, my kingdom, or if you wanted, you could translate that, my kingship or my power is not of this world. Jesus says, my power is not a worldly kind of power. If it were, my servants would have fought to preserve it. Jesus says, if I was here to set up a worldly kingdom with worldly power, you would have known it loud and clear. My servants would have gone to war. They would have used worldly methods and worldly means just like everybody else to protect and preserve my power, but that's not what happened. And at the same time, part of the reason, Jesus says, that I've caused such a fuss in our society is that I simply refuse to throw my lot in with worldly power to gain their approval. I refuse to just go along to get along. Otherwise, I wouldn't be questioned here as a rebel against the, the establishment of my day. You see, this is the nature of God's kingdom. 
On the one hand, it refuses to unnecessarily antagonize worldly power. It refuses to use worldly means and worldly methods to win that power back. But on the other hand, God's kingdom also refuses to be absorbed and acquired by worldly power. It refuses to be flexible on truth just for the sake of regaining influence and approval. Because worldly power is not its goal. Jesus does not fear worldly power or kingdoms or authorities. And because he doesn't fear them, he can't be co-opted by them. The power of Jesus is category-defying. It doesn't attack and it doesn't accommodate. His power is a different type of power entirely. It is a power that is made perfect in weakness. It's a power that is displayed precisely in how it handles being forgotten about, mistreated, and neglected. It is a power that endures the loss of all things and considers that gain. Listen, there were some good things that came out of Christianity being somewhat respected in our country for many years. I'm thankful for many of the things that God accomplished through that and through that period of time. But I hope we're not foolish enough to think that God is dependent upon that for him to move. I hope we're not foolish enough to think that God needs us to be respected and culturally powerful to do great things through us. At some point, we have to remember that the message of Jesus has often spread the fastest and been at its best when it is most attacked, hated, and cast aside. So let's not think so lowly of God and his kingdom to assume that he is reliant on political machinery to get the job done. He doesn't need us to be powerful, and he does not need us to be liked. Have you ever considered that the universal symbol for the Christian faith is a cross. Not a chariot, not a trumpet, not a mighty warrior, not riches or fame or glamour, a cross. Can you think of a less powerful or impressive symbol to represent our faith? Do you know what a cross meant in Jesus' day? It meant I lost. It meant I was conquered, I was defeated. And that is what separates the way of Jesus from every other belief system, every other ideology, every other worldview that there is. In every other ideology, victory comes through conquest or power or achievement or coercion. In the kingdom of Jesus, victory comes through defeat. Life comes through death, power comes through weakness. In Colossians, it says that Jesus conquered the rulers and authorities by, quote, triumphing over them in the cross. Victory by defeat. In the book of Revelation, it says that God's people triumph by the blood of the lamb, i.e. Jesus' death on the cross, and their testimony because, quote, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In the kingdom of Jesus, you don't need guns, chariots, horses, or campaigns. You need a cross. Here's why that matters. Right now, 
both narratives in our world, from both sides of the political spectrum, the right and the left, both of them are dependent upon you and me as followers of Jesus fearing the loss of cultural power and influence. They're depending on us fearing that experience. They need you to feel threatened enough or desperate enough to buy their agenda and give your allegiance to it. So when you don't fear the loss of worldly power, when you're not motivated by that, when you don't fear that, the political ideologies start to lose all of their leverage. They can no longer demand our allegiance because we're not buying what they're selling. We're not even in the market for it. I long for the day when followers of Jesus realize that power is not something the world can grant us and it's not something the world can take away. Followers of Jesus in the room, we serve a crucified Messiah, a king who was conquered. And that did not change the fact that he was king. In fact, it confirmed it. So when we act as if we need political power and political leverage and political influence to accomplish things for Jesus' sake, we don't just come off looking desperate, we don't just come off looking threatened, we actually contradict the very message we claim to believe. And when we refuse the allure of worldly power and influence, we tap into the power made possible by Jesus through the Spirit, and that is the only power that will last. So the invitation to all of us who follow Jesus this morning, all of us who would claim to belong to him, is simple. He repeated it over and over again in the Gospels. Pick up your cross, pick up your cross, and follow him. And finally, if you're in the room, and you've been disillusioned by how consumed Christians often are with politics. If that's you, if that's your frustration, if that's what's causing the questions and the doubt in you, I would just invite you to consider that maybe, just maybe, the problem is not Jesus, but in a complete misunderstanding of the type of kingdom Jesus came to bring. Let's pray. Father, um, right off the bat, um, I want to grieve the amount of damage that has been done when we as followers of Jesus have given politics our allegiance and not you. God, that is something that there needs to be repentance on. Maybe not for every person. I praise God that we have a lot of people who are around our church that just completely reject that lie being sold to us all of the time. But God, if there's anybody in the room that, that maybe needs to participate in some repentance along those lines this morning, God, I pray that we do it. God, maybe even I, I pray that if that's us, if if giving a political party our allegiance has, um, has hindered our ability 
to love people well, if it's caused us to, to mistreat or show contempt towards certain people in our lives in Jesus' name, I pray that our repentance would include apologizing to those people directly. I pray that we'd ask their forgiveness. But God, then I wanna just pray for all of us um, living in a, uh, in a time and an age where politics has become the new religion. That you would help us to resist in a really healthy way. that you would help us to identify first and most with the kingdom of the crucified Messiah. The king who did not live his life in constant fear or paranoia of losing cultural power and influence because that is not what he came to, to chase or pursue. So God, would you help us to embody that spirit of Jesus? God, that we wouldn't need the approval of people, that we wouldn't need the cultural power or influence that the world is trying to sell us, but that instead we would find full approval and all the power we need by belonging to you and your kingdom by being a part of what you're up to in the world. God, I want our church to be a group of people that embody citizenship to an entirely different kingdom. And so God, would you just help us this morning, um, whatever it looks like, whatever we need to repent of, whatever we need to acknowledge, wherever we need to let you in and listen and respond. Would you help us to do precisely that? And would we see so much fruit as a result of it? We ask this in your name. Amen.